Hi, Fishman Radio. It's Bryce Tapp. I'm bringing you today's episode one week in advance because this weekend, October 24th, Fishman will be hosting its very first virtual conference. Our topics for the conference are the subject of today's episode. We'll still have an episode for you next Friday, and that'll be a news update from the 75th UN General Assembly annual debate. Now, my conversation with Marin Thomas. Welcome to Fishman Radio. I'm Bryce Tapp, your host, and today my conversation with Fishman's Undersecretary General, Marin Thomas. Today we'll be discussing the Global Vaccine and Disease Outbreak Action Plan. Marin, on top of being a Fishman director for many years, also wrote the background guide for this topic and is a current medical school student. Marin, welcome to Fishman Radio. Thanks for having me here, Bryce. Awesome. So let's just dive right in. So what is the first part of this topic, the Global Vaccine Action Plan? Yeah, so this topic is such an important topic, um, and it really deals with the problems associated with global public health concerns, which is so prevalent, especially right now, as each of us are currently experiencing the very real consequences of a global outbreak. We're at a point where deaths due to COVID-19 have surpassed 1 million people globally, which is just a shocking and very sad and tragic number. Um, But it's so important that we realize it's not just a number here and we can't consider it as just a statistic because that is 1 million people who have died and lost their lives to to this disease. And so this, in this topic, we want to be able to address these public health outbreaks far more effectively and be able to provide guidance for the governing bodies and the agencies um, associated with this to do so. So on top of all of the concerns that you just introduced to us, you know, what are the vaccines or the uh, diseases that the delegates are going to be learning about in today's episode and in their background guide? Yeah, there are so many different pathogens out there, which leads to there just being so many diseases that can result from them. But the good news is that there are many diseases for which we already have vaccines for. And that's remarkable because vaccines prevent millions of deaths every year. Uh, So some of the other vaccines that delegates will need to further consider are that for Ebola, for tuberculosis um, and problems associated with multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. And developing these vaccines is such a complicated and time-consuming process. And despite that though, it's vital that we have the resources devoted uh, to this target. And it's so especially important in the fight against vaccine preventable diseases. Um, And a vaccine preventable disease is, it's an infectious disease for which there's already an effective preventative vaccine for it. And there really are so many of those, Um, for example, diphtheria and measles and neonatal tetanus. And these vaccines have been proven to be effective and they've decreased deaths associated with those diseases. And really that is the goal we're ultimately striving for. So that goal that you referenced, that the UN and that the World Health Organization is constantly striving for, 
what issues um, within that goal are the delegates going to be facing in this topic? There are several different issues uh, that delegates should consider. Uh, if we start with vaccines, I hope that delegates can see so clearly now um, in the face of you know, this COVID pandemic, just how important it is that we have a, a streamlined process for the development and also for the distribution of these vaccines. And this is, it's, it's important not just for COVID-19, but like I said before, there's just so many other diseases that exist like cholera or Ebola, um, HIV AIDS, um, influenzas, and multiple other diseases that they simultaneously exist along with COVID. And those diseases can't simply be forgotten just because COVID has captured all the headlines right now. And so when we you know, think about these vaccines, we also need to consider um, the distribution plans for them. And so it's really important that delegates ensure that this distribution plan includes all populations of people at all ages. A, a big problem right now um, is how uneven vaccine coverage and distribution is. And this is both between different member states and also within countries themselves. So really I urge all delegates to consider all the different factors that lead to this inequity because that's what's really hindering us from being able to provide vaccines for all. So one of the vaccines that you talked about that are already in, you know, that already exists and that is already in distribution and has been for some time is the tuber tuberculosis vaccine. So I was wondering if you could walk us through um, what tuberculosis is and what this vaccine is. Yeah, TB is a very interesting bacteria, I think. It's caused by mycobacterium tuberculosis, which it's crazy to think about that we as humans have been infected with this bacteria for thousands of years. Um, it's, it's incredible. But when we want to look at the bacterium itself, there's two forms uh, that this bacterium can exist between. There's a latent form and then there's an active form of TB. In the latent form of TB, you have the, this TB bacteria and it remains inactive. And so you won't have any symptoms. Uh, this form isn't contagious, um, but this inactive form can turn into the active form of TB. And we predict that about, um, about one third of the world's population has latent tuberculosis. And then the other form is active TB. And this is the form that will make you sick and makes you contagious. And it has, um, can lead to symptoms of coughing and you can cough up blood. Uh, there's possible chest pain, uh, fatigue, fever. And it will most often affect your lungs, but TB can also affect other parts of your body. Uh, when we consider the spread of this disease, TB is spread from person to person through the air. Uh, so for example, Bryce, if we're in the same room and if I had TB in my lungs and I coughed or I sneezed, 
then I may propel some of those bacterium into the air. And if you inhaled any of those bacteria, then you could become infected. And you really are more likely um, and more susceptible to become ill from TB if you're immunocompromised. Um, but the good news is that TB is curable and it's also preventable. So there is the vaccine for TB, uh, the BCG vaccine. It's not generally recommended for use in the United States, but it's widely used in other countries um, across the world. And it's been used for over uh, 90 years with really, really great safety records. And it's, it's such a um, impactful vaccine because by giving this ECG vaccine to newborns and to infants, it's incredible that we've significantly reduced the risk of TB by over 50%. So it's, uh, it's a very effective and so it's great towards um, our fight against TB. So one of the things that you said is that um, tuberculosis is curable, um, but there are instances where tuberculosis shows resistance to drug treatments. Um, could, you, could you talk about that? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because scientists can do genetic tests to check for the presence of TB in history. And they've actually been able to find evidence of TB in the spine of mummies from around 3000 BC, which is incredible. So while we talk about TB being around for thousands of years, it's important to consider that only in the past few decades have we had the development of multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. And that's become a very serious threat to global health. What happens in multi-drug resistant TB is that these patients become immune to the most common first-line drugs against TB. And that's usually because of the mismanagement of their TB treatment and also then the person-to-person -person transmission. And even more recently, we've had a, uh, there's been further mutations uh, leading to what's called extensively drug-resistant TB. And these, um, these extensively drug-resistant TB are resistant to the frontline drugs, um, as with multidrug resistant, but also resistant to multiple of these second-line drugs. And this really should give you an idea of why this would be extremely dangerous, especially because it is so contagious. We have global hotspots for multidrug resistant TB, especially in uh, Eastern Europe, in parts of Asia, um, in Sub-Saharan Africa. And these areas face a very harsh challenge because of the high cost of treating TB. And also, especially the very high cost of treating drug-resistant strains of TB. And so in order to really help in these areas, we can't forget to consider the effect of TB on especially high-risk populations, um, such as prisoners, uh, refugees, indigenous populations, and another really high-risk population is, are those people that have TB and HIV co-infections. And it's 
important and very critical that we have routine TB screening in these areas and for these populations in order to minimize the stigma that's associated with this disease. And also, of course, to be able to minimize the spread of TB and allow quicker access uh, to treatment for these patients. I want to see if you could explain more. Um, you said earlier that TB is, um, it, you know, you're more susceptible to receive a TB infected, you know, to become infected with TB if you are immunocompromised. And then you just said that there is, does co, there does exist co, um, co-infection between HIV AIDS and TB. Could you elaborate on what HIV AIDS is and what that means? Like you just finished with the TB discussion, um, what this means for our delegates and their deliberations at the WHO. Sure. Uh, so HIV, uh, human immunodeficiency virus, can lead to AIDS, which is also known as acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. And HIV is a virus that basically attacks the cells in our body um, that would normally help our body fight off infections. And if HIV is left untreated, then it can lead to AIDS. With AIDS, um, our bodies become immunocompromised, um, as I said before. So that means that we become vulnerable to other infections. Some of these AIDS-defining complications um, that can arise are pneumonia, uh, candidiasis, which is a fungal infection, uh, and it can also lead to cancers, such as Kaposi sarcoma, which is something I've been really interested in and I've done a lot of research on for a few years. But we don't yet have an effective cure for HIV, but we do have antiretroviral therapy, which is medicine that can allow these HIV patients to live long and healthy lives and prevent the transmission of HIV, especially to their sexual partners. When we look at the spread of HIV, HIV is spread through certain body fluids, um, as well as through the improper uh, use of needles and syringes. And in addition to this, there's also vertical transmission of HIV. And vertical transmission means that it can be spread from mother to child during pregnancy or birth or breastfeeding. And it's, it's, this vertical transmission is important, especially when we, you know, when we consider that pregnancy process, we need to be able to screen pregnant women for HIV. And if they're found positive, being able to um, provide HIV treatment immediately has reduced the number of HIV positive babies. Um, and this can, is really important because it prevents AIDS orphans, which um, an AIDS orphan is a child whose mother has died due to AIDS before the child has turned 15. Uh, and protecting these kids and being able to prevent the further spread of HIV requires appropriate education about AIDS and about its transmission. I read about a study in which they surveyed girls who were aged 15 to 19 in Kenya. And almost 40% of the girls couldn't name a single way to protect themselves from HIV infection, and which you know, includes contraceptives. And many of these, these girls surveyed didn't know that 
someone who might appear healthy physically can still have HIV AIDS. And so this evidence shows it's just, it's not simply a problem just in one area, but across the world, there are so many places that don't provide good reproductive health education that could prevent the spread of HIV as well as other sexually transmitted infections. So if I can just stress how important it is to consider these high risk groups and also to remember the prevalence of this disease and the serious impact of this virus everywhere. Even in the United States, the statistics are still startling. Uh, immunocompromised individuals are, of course, more susceptible, but there's also other high-risk groups. If uh, we look at Black men who have sex with men, they have a 50% increased lifetime risk of HIV in the United States. For Hispanic men who have sex with men, that's 25% increased lifetime risk. And white men who have sex with men is a 10% increased lifetime risk. So I share these stats because as someone who will be a future physician, my goal is to assess risk and use that to help treat patients and ensure their healthy lives. So it's really startling when we consider that there really is so much we can do to help. And one of the, um, like going back to your point about the AIDS orphans, one of the figures that I read earlier today um, mm -hmm. um, shows that there were 13.4 million children who had lost either one or both of their parents to AIDS. And that's a little bit more than the entire population in the state of Illinois. Um, so just kind of imagine, I want our listeners to just imagine that, that that number of people um, or that number of children rather are without a parent because of this disease. Um, and so sort of to underscore a point you made earlier is that all of these public health crises, because that's what these are individually, are still ongoing amid a pandemic um, of a disease that is killing people um, in the United States at high rates um, and, um, and around the world. And so I want to bring in um, something that the CDC recently reported that following um, United States President Donald Trump's declaration of a national health emergency earlier this year, the number of routine childhood vaccines dropped in part, well, because parents and families were staying home more. Um, so could you walk us through um, what the Global Vaccine Action Plan is and, and especially what does it look like now amid a pandemic? Yeah, it's very disheartening to think that childhood vaccines rates have dropped. That's the opposite of what we want, right? We want to be able to increase access to childhood vaccines, um, decrease vaccine preventable deaths. And so the World Health Organization had, you know, in regards to that, put forth the Global Vaccine Action Plan. And it was really hoping to achieve five main goals, which are a polio-free world, um, ensuring that we have uh, vaccine, vaccination targets everywhere, decreasing childhood mortality, um, being able to meet elimination targets, and also being able to develop new and improved vaccines. While we're now, you know, while we now are vaccinating more children than ever before, many of these goals that we uh, had set forth in the plan 
actually haven't been fully met. So for example, when we consider polio, the first goal, um, polio's almost been eradicated throughout the entire world, but there's actually still three re remaining endemic areas in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Nigeria. And since the polio virus spreads from person to person, if even one child is infected with polio, then everyone is still at risk. Thankfully, polio can be prevented with the polio vaccine. And so while this, you know, this vaccine action plan is ending, it's important to continue working towards the goals that were set forth in it. Um, and so you spoke earlier, like you, well, you just spoke about, the, that we're almost at the point of eradicating polio. Um, and so I, you know, obviously part of this is adequate vaccine distribution. So how can member states of the United Nations, how, how can they reach those elimination targets um, for diseases and vaccine targets? Um, yeah, so how, how can they do that? What are those strategies that the WHO has given them? So those, those strategies, the, the true necessity here is being able to have effective collaboration between all the parties to be able to provide substantial assistance. We have to ensure that member states and health agencies, pharmaceutical companies, and all other relevant parties here commit to reaching all vulnerable groups of people and prioritizing immunization for everyone. Uh, delegates should remember that we need to have vaccine targets, not just for drugs that pharmaceutical companies may deem as profitable, but also for neglected tropical diseases and for other less profitable diseases as well. And of course, um, it's also very important that, that delegates remember to uphold the transparency and, and public trust by you know, ensuring that there's accurate reporting of vaccines and um, the rates of disease. And, and that's also very critical in, in this. So you said about the goals going forward. And one of the things, obviously, um, is the GVAPs or GVAP, um, its expiration this year. So what is the immunization agenda? Um, and, is it, and is it slated to be a successful continuation of the GVAP? The Immunization Agenda uh, 2030 is the new global strategy that the World Health Organization has put forth. And the great advantage to this new plan is that it takes into account the shortcomings of the Global Vaccine Action Plan and also its successes and how we can learn from those lessons. The, the biggest critique of the GVAP was its top-bottom strategy, and it didn't take into account regional variations that, of course, will occur. But this new immunization agenda is, is very intentional about allowing for flexibility between local and regional goals, which is important because we can't, you know, we don't have the same goal for, for everyone. It's not a blanket goal. And I really like the vision to be um, for, for this new plan, which is um, a world where everyone everywhere fully benefits from vaccines to improve health and well-being, which is an incredible vision, um, especially because 
its core principles are that it puts people at the center. Um, it's led by countries themselves um, and it implements broad partnerships and driven by data. So, I mean, these are incredible principles to be founded upon. And so being able to use this and reflect on the criticism of the previous plan um, and use that to build a stronger, more effective plan is what I think will help make this new immunization agenda even more successful. So it sounds like um, what you just you know, told us about is that it seems like the UN is really trying to integrate this spirit and this goal of reducing inequities and inequalities even in the future of immunization access. And so that's really heartening to hear. Um, and that's, I think, very important for our delegates to keep that in mind. So moving to the second part of our topic, which is Disease Outbreak Action Plan. Part of the Disease Outbreak Action Plan is something that the World Health Organization calls the Global Outbreak Alert and Response Network. What is this? The, uh, the Global Outbreak Alert and Response uh, Network is a system that provides training uh, for responses to epidemics and coordinated pandemic responses. And it's really intended to provide standardized guidelines for both disease readiness and response um, and, you know, responding to those diseases. Thank you so much. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that that's something that our delegates are obviously going to be aware of um, going in with all the news going on and sort of the public health policies that we've been alerted to. Um, and so kind of this, you know, that's obviously the initial stage of a disease outbreak action plan is this alert and response network. So how are we going to inform public health agencies around the world and what policies are we going to do to respond to this outbreak and combat it? So obviously we are experiencing public health policies in our everyday life, such as mask wearing uh, or wearing a face covering over your nose and your mouth or washing your hands and then also maintaining a social distance. So, but then obviously along this sort of response network that is obviously ongoing, there's also this vaccine development process that is going on right now, but also has happened in the past. So what does vaccine development look like? Um, and what does it look like during a pandemic? That's um, a great question. Vaccine development is an incredibly difficult um, and very time-consuming and expensive process. 
and it involves uh, multiple steps. So the, the first step to developing a vaccine starts really with the basic science of the virus and trying to figure out the best approach to finding a vaccine uh, because there's so many different you know, approaches to creating vaccines. And then after this, we do animal studies to understand how the virus causes the disease, um, which is important in just the mechanistic point of view. Um, following that, we have small scale manufacturing um, and then clinical trials. Um, and so these clinical trials are very important. We have multiple phases for it. And um, the, the first stage, um, phase one, includes human testing in small groups in order to be able to optimize the, le the level of the drug. And the key step here in this phase is to show that there's no obvious harm done with this, this drug. And then phase two, we want to be able to assess safety in larger numbers. And then the key here in this step is to see if there is a benefit to the drug at all. Um, and then also to see if there are any potential side effects. Uh, for phase three, we are wanting to compare the, the new drug to the standard of care in the field. And then lastly, we have phase four, which is large scale trials with thousands of volunteers. Um, and we wanna be able to see the short and the long-term side effects. So following all these, um, the clinical trial phase, we need regulatory approval, uh, which is really important to be able to um, have full approved use of the drug. And then finally, we have large scale manufacturing um, and that allows us to distribute it on a, on a large scale. So during this pandemic, um, it's, it's very interesting um, how this, this process has changed. Um, so for greater efficiency and you know, especially for this time sensitive situation, it's important to perform as many of these steps of this process in parallel as, as uh, possible. So for example, we already have planning that's begun for the large scale manufacturing, which if you remember was the very last stage of this entire process um, for several different vaccine approaches. But you know, none of these vaccines have actually to this date yet been fully approved. And so that's just a way to be able to streamline this process and, and shorten the time frame of a potential COVID vaccine. So I think it's really important to consider how remarkable this achievement is though. You know, whenever we do get a potential vaccine, um, usually in the past, vaccines have taken years, sometimes decades of research and testing before clinical use. But a potential COVID-19 vaccine will be record-breaking in terms of reducing this vaccine development timeframe. So very, very incredible. But now that we're having this conversation about vaccine manufacturing, we also have to, the inevitable question, the ethical question arises, well, who gets the vaccine first? That's not a question that you know we can answer or address here. But one of the things I wanted to ask if you could talk about is what does vaccine distribution look like um, when we're talking about distribution to displaced populations? Yeah, so I we just went through all these steps to develop a vaccine, right? And 
it's it's complicated, but uh, it's it's very very important that these vaccination strategy that we have vaccination strategies for displaced populations, like you just said, um, they really should be included um, from the very beginning of this this planning process. There's such a huge necessity to to uh, deliver any potential vaccine that we have to these populations as well. And, you know, for their health, so to interrupt the circulation of this virus around the entire world, all people need to have sufficiently high population immunity to the COVID virus. And so when we look at displaced persons, we need unique strategies for these um, for these people that have been um, affected by a humanitarian emergency. They are groups of people that often don't have access to routine health services because of the situation that they're facing. Um, they often don't have the routine and the, the recommended immunizations. Um, since these are disrupted, it leads to these displaced person, persons having um, a higher risk for not just COVID, but also other vaccine-preventable diseases. Um, and in addition to all of this, these populations often have many health-associated challenges um, because of you know, their, all the factors relating to their health. And so uh, the, these regions and these populations um, that are affected by conflicts, um, often violent conflicts, lack access to very basic health resources and then have to require uh, rely a lot on humanitarian support. And if we really want to alleviate these challenges, um, the best public health approach is health promotion and disease prevention. So some of you know some of the examples of this would be preventative approaches, which is so critical. Um, and these can include screening and education and pre-disease management. Uh, with how widespread um, COVID has become, it's just really important that I think delegates keep in mind that it will not be possible to eradicate the COVID virus unless vaccination plans and you know, distribution plans for these vaccines include displaced persons. I think that's a really important note for us to end on, Marin. Um, and so I hope that our delegates in their preparation do not forget the least among us, um, especially during an ongoing uh, pandemic. Do you have any closing thoughts and advice for the delegates? Thanks, Bryce. It's been my pleasure to be able to do this. There's this problem of diseases and vaccines is so prevalent all around the world. And there are so many people that face such harsh challenges due to this. But now that we're in the middle of this COVID pandemic, it's a reality for each and every one of us. And we all now know, if you didn't know before, just how real, how severe, and how important it is to you know, consider everything related to this, this large topic. So I really just want to encourage all of our delegates and all of our listeners to remember to include good, um, good hygiene measures to be able to use um, a face mask when you go out in public, uh, to be able to social distance, um, and 
All of these are so important to limit the spread of COVID. And so I hope everyone stays happy and stays healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fishman Radio. If you didn't register for this weekend's virtual conference, our second virtual conference will be December 5th, and that will be open to middle school and high school students. We hope to see you there virtually.